Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. I'm Alan. And I'm Tara. We just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to our first season. Yes, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed listening because we definitely enjoyed making it. Uh, We're still getting the hang of this stuff, but hopefully everyone found it informative and entertaining. Yes, and season two begins during the season of love. Um, We decided to air this episode right before the day of love, Valentine's Day. And like most holidays in the last year, it looks a little different, but that doesn't mean that we can't still have a little fun. So I had my second dose of the COVID vaccine today. Um, I am very excited for this. And if you want to chat vaccines with me, let me know. I'm happy to discuss calm fears or what have you. Just throwing that out there in the universe. I am in the medical field. Um, But if I feel good tomorrow, we will be enjoying Valentine's Day brunch at the beauty shop. That's right. They have these great little greenhouses for couples or igloos for more than two people to enjoy a safe and socially distanced meal or just a few drinks. And their meals are amazing. They are. Uh, We did this for my birthday back in December, and Alan had the chilequiles, uh, which are sort of a breakfast nacho type deal. And I had lemon ricotta pancakes. Yeah. And I am getting hungry just thinking about it. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, If you've not eaten at the beauty shop, which actually used to be a beauty shop, um, make reservation and go. It's on Cooper, just south of Young, and we promise you'll enjoy it. Another exciting reason for us to celebrate Valentine's Day is because of our feline companions. February 14th will be Toka's 11th birthday and also Marlo's 6th gotcha day. Yay. Toka and her four siblings were born in the backyard of a contracting company on Cooper, next door to my old apartment. Uh, the day we heard their little muse coming from that yard was also the day we had gotten a good bit of snow. So since my neighbors and I didn't want them to freeze, uh, we took them and their mama, uh, Bridget, um, she was a neighborhood stray, into the apartment downstairs from mine and kept them until they were weaned off of her. We searched around and found three of their litter, their forever homes. Toka luckily didn't need to travel far for hers, only about 12 feet up. (laughs) And the other two were luckily taken in by House of Muse and adopted after only a short time. And I got Marlo from the Humane Society on Valentine's Day as a companion for my Brody dog. Um, Brody had lost her sister a year before and she was kind of lonely. And knowing I didn't have time to train another dog, a cat seemed like the best option. Um, Brody had lived with cats and rabbits before, so I knew all would be well. Uh, so we went to the shelter, and there was only one kitten. Uh, apparently was not the season for them, so this sassy little tuxedo was meant to be. And she and Brody were the best of friends until Brody's last day with us. And I never really thought I was a cat person until I got Marlo, but now I cannot imagine my life without her. That's okay. She's kind of a dog anyway. So. She she really is. Yeah. <laughs> Both of our kitties have quite unique personalities. Toka is the most laid back, chill cat, and she really just likes to lay on my legs and sleep unless I'm not home, and then and only then will she snuggle with Tara, and she thinks I don't find out, but I know. Yeah. <laughs> she also has an excellent jilted look whenever she's displeased with something one of us has done. You know, tragically cruel things like wake her up or move a little when she's asleep (laughs) or not feed her dinner precisely at the time that she realizes she's hungry. Mm, She's such a diva. She is. (laughs) 
So like Alan said, Marlo does have some dog-like tendencies because she was basically raised by a dog. So she'll roll over to have her belly rubbed when you walk in the door. Um, She'll obsessively lick you. Obsessively. Obsessively. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And she talks a lot. Uh, But she's also a cat, so she can be a jerk. Like uh, you tell her to not do something and she deliberately, while staring at you, does said inappropriate things. And then she throws things on the floor. She runs in front of you all stealthy-like and tries to trip and kill you. You know, cat things. Right. Uh, she's real pretty, though, so I let it she slide. Yeah. Uh, but that's probably why she's bad, because I'm a pushover cat mama. You are. That's okay. I'm, I'm okay with the role of disciplinarian, as, as if that's possible with cats. Right. Oh, um, so my last tangent, sorry, uh, Snowy Valentine's Day got me thinking uh, I would love one. And when we started writing this episode, I didn't think we'd have one. And guess what? You were wrong. I was. <laughs> we were totally going to feign jealousy about Kevin and Allie, my brother and sister-in-law, for having a real winter in Philly where they live now. But we now don't have to because Memphis has clearly transported itself into another dimension where snow actually happens in the winter. Mm-hmm. Or back to 1994, that other time we had real snow and ice. Yeah, a lot of ice. <laughs> so yay for a snowy white Valentine's Day. <laughs> All right, now more tangents. Now on to our story. Yes, so this story is a love story. But true to our nature, it's got a dark twist to it. And this may not be appropriate for young listeners since it involves murder. So parents, give it a listen if you feel necessary. All right. The day of our wedding was set, and then not all the powers in the world could have separated us. It was our intention to leave here and go to St. Louis, and I would have been Freda's slave. I would have devoted my whole life to making her happy. But when Freda returned my engagement ring, it broke my heart. It was the most cruel thing I have ever suffered. I could not bear the idea of being separated from her, whom I loved more dearly than my life. I wrote to her and implored her not to break off the engagement, but my letters availed nothing. I could not bear to think of her living in the company of others. Then, indeed... I resolved to kill Freda because I loved her so much that I wanted her to die loving me. And when she did die, I know she loved me better than any other human being on earth. I got my father's razor and I made up my mind to kill Freda. And now I know she's happy. And that was said by Miss Alice Mitchell. Touching. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, kind of. Uh, Alice Mitchell was born November 26, 1872, in Memphis, to George and Isabella Mitchell, a relatively well-off family. Uncle George, as he was called, was a partner in the furniture business, Mitchell and Bryson. Her mother, Isabella, was a homemaker with somewhat sordid past of her own. After her first child was born, Isabella was committed to the mental ward for melancholia. The doctor diagnosed her with puerperal insanity, a derangement or unstable state brought about by childbirth. Uh, because postpartum depression wasn't acknowledged as a thing back then, so I guess you were just considered to be crazy. Yes, so. Uh, she stayed in the hospital for two months before recovering, only to find out that her child had died while she was away. While her mind became unbalanced again, she managed to pull herself out of it for fear that she would be committed again. Isabella had seven children, but only four survived until adulthood. Her mental instability supposedly worsened with each birth. Alice was the last of Isabella's children. As a child, Alice was not the typical girl of that time period. 
She didn't enjoy needlepoint and sewing. Alice preferred swinging, climbing, marbles and tops, sports, and shooting rifles. She didn't prefer the company of boys in the way most girls did. She was often rude to them, except for her brother, with whom she spent time playing. She didn't fare well in school, and her teachers believed her to be badly balanced, and she lacked the desire to read books or newspapers. Alice was handsome, with hazel eyes and light brown hair. But she was never the fancy of the boys. They regarded her as mentally wrong. So I guess being a tomboy and being an active girl equals mentally wrong in that time time, period. Well, Alice was sent to the Higby School for Young Ladies, as were many girls of well-to-do families. And this is where she met Freda Ward. Freda, the tall, slender, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl, was the exact opposite of Alice in many ways. Passionate, enjoyed music, studious, that kind of thing. Frederica, or Freda, Ward was born March 5, 1874, to Thomas and Cornelia Ward. Thomas was a machinist at a fertilizer company. Besides Freda, the Wards had three other children. Unfortunately, Cornelia passed away in 1882. Thomas, Freda, and Joe stayed in Memphis for a while as Freda and Joe went to school, but some years later they moved to Gold Dust, Tennessee, about 80 miles north of Memphis, where the eldest married daughter, Ada, lived. Thomas became a merchant and planter, where he made a decidedly better living than in Memphis. His eldest daughter became like a mother to Freda. So let's go back a bit before the Wards moved away. Alice and Freda's relationship began during their stay at Higby's. It was not uncommon at the time for young girls to act fondly towards each other. Kissing, hugging, and walking arm in arm was called chumming, and it was thought to be the girls' training for their future relationships with their husbands. But Alice and Freda's relationship was different. Alice felt a connection to Freda like she would a connection to a man, and Freda appeared to have shared Alice's affections, but somewhat less strongly. As it turns out, Alice fell in love with Freda, obsessively so, and they spent all their time together at school as well as at home, eventually becoming lovers. When Freda's family moved to Gold Dust, Alice was openly distressed. The two corresponded via mail often, expressing their love for each other. In the summer, Alice was able to go to Gold Dust to visit for several weeks. During this time, they resumed their previous relationship. Freda's older sister, Ada, thought nothing of their affections. She assumed it was just something unwed girls did, since at that time there was really not a word for what she was seeing. During the winter of 1890, Freda came to Memphis to visit and stay with Alice for several weeks. One night in particular, Freda decided to tell Alice about two men that were occupying her affections in Gold Dust. And now why would she do that? She's just starting yeah, stuff. Just <laughs> Two gentlemen, Ashley Rozelle and Harry Bilger, had begun openly taking interest in Freda. This made Alice extremely upset. This was the first time we see Alice's murderous tendencies. While in bed, Alice brandished a bottle of laudanum, a mix of opium and alcohol, which was used for pain relief. She was contemplating whether she would poison Freda with it. <laughs> The concentrated dose could potentially kill Freda, or it could make her break out in an itchy rash, constrict her breathing, or have very irritable bowels. <laughs> but Alice did not give it to Freda, holding on to the bottle. Uh, because after all that, if it didn't kill her, she probably would have wanted it She would have too. wanted death, yeah. <laughs> that sounds awful. The next day, when Freda was to depart back to Gold Dust, Alice followed her on the steamer and shut the door of the cabin behind her, screaming, Marry whomever you want, and down the bottle of laudanum. And Alice did not die, though. Uh, she apparently suffered from the aforementioned ailments, though. So yeah, karma. that's some karma. Yep. 
As Alice was recovering at home, she continually wrote letters to Freda, and they then resumed their regular correspondence. It was February of 1891 that Alice decided to make a move, and in a letter to Freda, she proposed marriage. Freda accepted. She, in fact, accepted the proposal in three additional letters that Alice had sent her. In true Alice fashion, in her final proposal letter, she warned Freda that if she broke off the promise of marriage, Alice would kill herself. Right, because let's talk about how ultimatums generally end poorly. They do, yeah. They do. Freda continued to agree to the marriage, and with that, Alice collected the money that she saved and bought an engagement ring for Freda, and it cost her $15. Alice gave Freda this ring on her visit to Goldust in June of 1891. Freda accepted it and wore it, as well as freely showed her affection for Alice. And Alice was oddly ashamed of their public displays of affection. While Freda's sister Ada, who at first did not think much of the girls' affection for each other, began to think it was disgusting. She was pleased to see Alice returning to Memphis. So, how were the girls managing to get married, you may ask? Well, their plan was a complicated one. Alice would go to a barber shop and get her hair cut short like a man. She would buy men's clothes and start going by the name Alvin J. Ward. Freda would come down from gold dust, and when they arrived, Alice would get a marriage license, and they would either have a ceremony in Alice's home church or before the justice of the peace if her pastor didn't agree with the wedding. Once they were married, Alice and Freda would go to St. Louis, where Alice, a.k.a. Alvin, would continue the countenance of a man and get a job to provide for Freda. At least they had a plan, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. A very movie plan. Right. It's like <laughs> put on Clark Kent glasses and you can't recognize you anymore. Yep. <laughs> Unfortunately, they faced some hiccups along the way. Mm. The first was a suitor of Freda's named Ashley Rozell. He was one of the men that Freda had mentioned earlier. In July of 1891, he began to court Freda and she offered him her picture. Uh, which, again, her actions make you think she'd rather be with someone other than Alice. Because yeah. I, think, I think the picture giving was kind of a big deal back then. Right. Alice found out about this and was overcome by jealousy. She demanded Freda stop encouraging him. Freda told Alice that she would be true to her forever. The second problem they encountered was Freda's sister, Ada. She found the letters that Alice and Freda had been writing to each other, and she found out their plan to marry each other and immediately forbade it. She told Freda that she would not be going to Memphis, but in an act of defiance, she went. Purely out of spite, her sister wrote letters to Alice and her mother to expose their secret. Ere now, you must fully realize that your supposed well-laid plans to take Fred away have now gone awry. You should have taken into consideration that Fred had a sister watching over her who had good eyes and plenty of common sense and was fully competent to take care of her sister. I return your engagement ring, as you call it, and all else that I know of you having Fred, as you won't marry her yet a while. Don't try in any way, shape, or form, or manner to have intercourse with Fred again. I thought you were a lady. I have found out to the contrary. Woo-wee! That is not a happy letter. (laughs) (laughs) When Alice's mother received the letter, she knew of Mrs. Volkmer's frail health. Uh, Volkmer was Ada's married name and believed it to be all a misunderstanding. The matter never resurfaced. Alice was quite distraught after they received the letter and the tokens of her affection back. She kept them locked in a box in the kitchen, returning often to look upon them. As the fall began, Alice started losing weight, losing interest in all things, acting strangely to her family and acquaintances. 
For example, during the winter months, Alice had ordered coal for the house. She ordered it in the name of Fred Ward, though. She claimed she didn't remember doing this, but her mind must have been on Freda. Those that knew her began to think she was not right in her mind. There were rumors of Freda's return to Memphis in November, but they never came to fruition. In anticipation, Alice would carry around her father's razor, already planning to do something despicable. When Freda didn't come to Memphis, Alice took matters into her own hands, penning letters to Ashley Rozell, believing he was her rival and the reason Freda was not coming to Memphis. It appears Alice is starting to to crack a little. She is, yeah. Um, Freda did eventually make it to Memphis in January 1892. Instead of staying with Alice, she stayed in Miss Kimbrough's boarding house. In an effort to see her, Alice wrote letters to her. Uh, She sent two, but only one was received by Freda. She wrote returned on it and sent it back to Alice. That is not a good sign. No, it's not. Freda did eventually write back to Alice, but only after the two had passed each other on the street, and there was no interaction between the two of them. Dear Allie, I love you now and always will, but I have been forbidden to speak to you, and I have to obey. You say I am as much to blame as you are. If I have done you any harm or caused you any trouble, I humbly beg your forgiveness. Please don't let anyone know I wrote this. No one knows about last summer's business except our family, that is, unless you have told someone. We go back to gold dust this evening, Freda. Alice knew there was no steamboat on the evening of January 18th, so she waited for one she knew was coming. On January 25th, 1892, the steamboat arrived. Alice and her horse and buggy set up for an evening ride. She invited her friend Lily Johnson, who brought her six-year-old nephew along for the ride. As they were riding past Mrs. Kimbrough's house, she saw Freda and her sister Joe on the way to the boat. Alice followed them to the boat, leaving Lily and her nephew in the buggy, and ran after Freda on the cobblestones. Alice grabbed Freda and, brandishing the razor, cut her face. Ooh. Yeah. Joe intervened, but ended up getting cut, too. Freda began to run off, but Alice caught her and cut her neck from ear to ear. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Laying on the ground, bleeding to death, Alice ran from Freda back to her buggy. As she jumped in, she grabbed the reins from a very shocked Lily and began to drive erratically back to her home. During the ride, Lily, bewildered, tried to clean the blood off of her face, and Alice told her to leave it because it was Freda's blood. When she asked Alice what she had done, she simply answered, Cut Fred. So, to make light of this, it reminds me of that part in Pitch Perfect when Fat Amy gets hit with a flying burrito, and it it fueled her hate fire, and she's like, Leave it. Leave it. (laughs) All right. When Alice got home, she told her mother what had happened, and the police came. So I guess at least she confessed to it. Uh, They waited for Alice's father to arrive home before taking her to jail. She told the police that she had cut Fred because she loved her and because she wouldn't speak to her. At that time, it did not appear that she had realized she had done anything wrong. She felt her best option was to marry Freda. But since she couldn't, the next best thing was to kill her. Mm. It was her duty. And she would be keeping her word to Fred. Thanks. Alice felt no remorse for what she had done, although she did cry for Freda because of her love for her. Uh, So now we know how and why Freda was murdered. We can start the trial portion of the story. And to start, Lily Johnson was arrested as an accessory, even though she was unaware of Alice's intentions. Her trial started February 23, 1892. The judge, Julius DeBose, delayed the hearings until the courtroom could be expanded. There was so much press coverage for this event, he wanted to make sure there was room for everyone. 
Big-name cities such as San Francisco and New York were sending reporters. Men, and even large number of women, came to see the spectacle. While Lily's lawyers insisted that she had no prior knowledge of what Alice had intended to do, Judge DeBose did not believe it. He said, The proof is evident that the defendant aided and abetted in the commission of the crime, a crime so atrocious and malignant ever perpetrated by a woman. Lily Johnson's bail was set at $10,000 and she was released. That was a lot of money then, too. No kidding. Eventually, the charges against Lily were dropped. Good. Well, Alice Mitchell had some of the best lawyers money could buy. General Luke Wright and Colonel George Gant. Gant was considered one of the best litigators in Memphis. He knew the law and was unmatched in the courtroom debate. Wright was the son of a Tennessee Supreme Court justice and an attorney general in Shelby County. The evening of the arrest, her lawyers interviewed Alice and decided, with the help of her father, on a plea of insanity. In order to proceed towards the trial, the court had to prove that she was fit to stand trial, given the plea of insanity. Alice's father testified to her genetic disposition to madness. As mentioned earlier, they used the word evidence of her mother having suffered from purpural insanity after the birth of her first child and having to be committed to an insane asylum for several months. She became more unstable as she was released from the asylum and learned of her child's death. With each child's birth, the pupural insanity worsened. This ailment was seen as having been passed down to her youngest daughter. So basically, they're blaming the mom's untreated postpartum depression uh, as being the cause for her daughter's mental instability. Right, right. Good job, guys. The media all over the nation grasped onto the story and ran with it. They sensationalized everything, although some facts were correct. Numerous were way off base. What they mainly focused on was the fact that Alice was not normal. Newspapers interviewed those that knew Alice personally. One of the things the neighbors had to say was, I live next door to Mr. George Mitchell and have known Alice for nine years or more and have never considered her strong mentally. Her manner has been always flighty and unsettled and her ways were very different from that of most girls. She was of an impulsive disposition and given to doing very much as the present mood inclined her, whether it was to snatch up a rifle and stand about her yard shooting sparrows or ride a bareback horse at breakneck speed around the premises. I've never seen anything about her conduct that was at all immodest, nor was she the least bit fast as regards to men. On the contrary, she seemed to care nothing for them and rather preferred the society of her own sex. From a long and close knowledge of Alice Mitchell, her act was that of an insane woman. In addition to the newspaper interviews, people in the community wrote to newspapers with outlandish stories of their own. One man said that three years prior to Freda's murder, Alice would have been 16 at the time, she made love like a man to his now-deceased daughter. Wow. People will say anything to get their 15 minutes of fame, apparently. Wow. Well, given all the speculation of Alice's unnatural personality, loving and wishing to marry a woman and supporting her was clearly a sign of lunacy. Clearly. And not surprising that the public had turned against her and were convinced that she was indeed insane. Uh, So it would seem that the prosecution was in trouble. Their only true argument was that Alice was of sound mind and the defense was merely drumming up sympathy with sensational evidence. The prosecution was headed by Attorney General Peters, and he stated that Alice was fast and jealous over a man, and while she was ill-tempered and vindictive, she was not insane. Peters also challenged Alice's moral character, reflecting negatively on the Mitchell's well-loved family. This rubbed the public the wrong way. The defense had won over the public. 
Gant and Wright also helped the defense by questioning prominent and influential physicians to support their claim of insanity. The first physician diagnosed Alice with erotomania, though inaccurately described, they defined it as unnatural affection between two persons of the same sex. Other physicians claimed that erotomania was a malady of the mind and could easily lead to murder. The clincher of the defense's claims was that Alice's testimony concluded by saying, and now I know she is happy. How would any sane person be able to say someone who had been murdered is now happy? You got a point there. Yeah, right. Uh, Unfortunately for the prosecution, it was hard to convince the judge and jury that a woman would pose as a man and try to provide for her as a man would. And killing Freda because she couldn't have her, and now no one else could either, was something society did not understand. It was beyond comprehension that a woman would want to be with someone whom she couldn't reproduce. The jury believed that Alice didn't choose Freda as a rational act. It was because of her diseased mind, which was passed on to her from her mother in utero. When all was said and done, and the defense had rested, it took the jury 20 minutes to come back with a verdict of insanity. Alice was sent to the Western State Insane Asylum in Bolivar, Tennessee. Alice died March 31, 1898. It has been said that she died of consumption, something that was spreading throughout the asylum, but there have been high speculations that she committed suicide by jumping in the asylum's water tank. She was 25. Both Alice and Fred are buried at Elmwood Cemetery. And that is the tragic love story of Alice and Freda. And it really is a sad tale. It, it makes me sad for them. Yeah, it does. They were just in love. And poor Alice. She may have been insane, um, given that she murdered Freda. But it was not insane that she loved her. Not at all. No. And, you know, really, who knows if Freda really loved Alice as much as Alice loved Freda. Uh, some of her actions make me think not. But I guess it could also be her thinking it was never going to work. So she didn't want to try. Um, But one thing is for sure, Alice wouldn't be the first or last to commit such a heinous act for love. Uh, We hope everyone has a much better Valentine's, Galentine's, or you're still super awesome even if you're single day um, than poor Alice and Freda. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for listening to the story that we unearthed. We hope you enjoyed our little macabre Valentine story. Yeah, sorry it was a a little sad, but, you know, it's us. It's still a love story. It's still a love story, and it's an unearthed Memphis love story, so it's going to be a little little macabre. (laughs) Macabre. Uh, Don't forget to like and subscribe, tell a friend, share social media. Uh, It's very important to us that everybody does that. Yes, please, 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 please. Uh, The next episode will drop on Wednesday in a week and a half since we dropped this episode on Saturday on your favorite podcast listening app. Check us out on our website at unearthmemphis.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901. Twitter at unearth901. And Instagram at unearthmemphis. Or you can drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. Questions, complaints, corrections, story ideas, or just general chatter is welcome and appreciated. Yes. And of course, here's our disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility some of the info is incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so we are not putting out any untrue info. To the best of our knowledge, what we're saying is correct, but let us know if you have anything to add or correct. That always reminds me of the beginning of People's Court. Maybe that should have been our intro and exit <laughs> <Maybe> music. So. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. 
Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton. 